If you have read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, perhaps you remember this story from one of the books called The Silver Chair. Lewis creates, as he often does, this beautiful spiritual analogy about a young girl or involving a young girl named Jill. She's in the land of Narnia. She's in the woods, and she's desperately thirsty. She comes upon a beautiful stream, and she longs to drink from this stream. The problem is, is that sitting next to that stream is an enormous lion. Now, she doesn't know that the lion is Aslan, which, of course, if you've read the the Chronicles, you know that that's the, the Christ figure throughout the stories. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I keep going on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of that water first. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who has seen his face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went straight to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished drinking. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. I love that. It's the same Aslan of whom Lucy, another young traveler you may remember, found out that Aslan was a lion. And she said, oh my, is he safe? Causing Mr. Beaver, of course, to respond, safe? Who said anything about safe? 
course he's not safe, but he's good. I like what John Ortberg says about Jesus' call to us. What Jesus basically said to people was, follow me and you're going to have a great big God and outrageous joy and you're going to be in trouble all the time. And they followed him. They followed him by the hundreds and by the thousands and by the tens of thousands. They followed the same path that Jesus had walked. Many of us are a part of that crowd of followers walking the path that Jesus walked. And in this season of Lent, we've, we've been following Jesus through the gospel readings of the lectionary. And, and as we continue in our journey this morning, we're going to meet a person that started out a long way away from being a follower of Jesus. At least from our perspective, it seems far. You might even think the very last person who, who would become a follower of Jesus. But by the end of a very engaging conversation. This person was all in. It's a story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. It is a story, my friends, of amazing grace. And it's probably, for many of us, a familiar one, but, but we don't want the familiar to uh, cause us to lose sight of the amazing. One of the things that, that I really think we have to believe with all of our being is that God is always at work in his world. After all, it is his world. And so he gets to do that. And whether the inhabitants recognize that it's his world or not, he is always at work because he loves his world and he loves those who are in it. He's at work in and through the circumstances in which people live and find themselves so that their hearts and their minds are stirred within them. And they begin to think about matters of ultimate importance. God is always at work stirring that kind of stuff in the lives of people in the world through the circumstances in which they find themselves. This is one of those stories. So I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to read just a part of the story. It is a lengthy story. You have to go home and read the last half of the story. We're just going to read the first half and uh, make some observations from it together. Let's read together. Here we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. My sisters and my brothers, this is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Most of us know, or at least have heard, when we read this story, oh yeah, there was, there was some animosity between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day. It had been around for centuries. Started clear back in the 8th century B.C., after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of which Samaria was a part, they practiced deporting people. The the Assyrians often operated on a a scorched earth policy. They they would just uh, slaughter and do horrific things to captives. From time to time, they would also uh, have mercy, and they would deport the people of the conquered land, transplant them in their own country, and then replace those who have been deported with people from their country, foreigners. That is what happened for the northern kingdom. So that the religion then of those Jews who had been a part of the northern kingdom eventually became a syncretistic blend of both worshiping Yahweh and worshiping foreign gods. Um, Ultimately, it led the uh, Samaritans to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That's that's the mountain that the woman refers to in this conversation with Jesus. Uh, And and that stood in direct defiance to the temple 
that was in Jerusalem. They prayed in the direction of their temple versus praying in the direction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they used an abbreviated version of the law. It was not the, the complete law that, that the Jews honored. And so, to the Jews, the Samaritans were ethnic half-breeds and they were religious traitors. And that would have been putting it nicely. Uh, they despised the Samaritans. And that's the reason why we just heard that question from the woman in response to Jesus asking her for a drink. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Double whammy there in that culture. How can you ask me for a drink? The language actually hints at a little bit of sarcasm that was coming from her mouth when she asked that. And it's these social dynamics that I think are so important to understand that make two phrases in the story that we've just read, I believe, uh, so key to understanding what is really going on in this story and provides what I think is a really challenging application for us. So, but can we put that first slide up? We read this right near the beginning, verse 4. Now he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Interesting that, that John would write that. So we look back through some of the ancient documents from that era, we find that, that not surprisingly, Jews avoided traveling through Samaria. If at all possible, they didn't go through Samaria. If they were close enough to the Jordan River, which was on the eastern side of the country, they would cross the river and travel along the east side until they got far enough north and then cross back over and skip Samaria altogether. But the reality was that the shortest route between points in the south and points in the north in Palestine usually went through Samaria. Just kind of lay smack dab right there in the middle of Palestine. So Jews would travel through Samaria, but only because it was convenient. You might say that Samaria was not a tourist destination for Jews. It was a necessary evil in the day, and they would avoid it if at all possible. Now, the truth is, the shortest route between Jerusalem, south of Samaria, to the region of Galilee, north of Samaria, the shortest route was to go right through Samaria. Would have been a long trip to go around the Jordan River and, and skip Samaria in that way. So, knowing that, I want you to talk with your neighbor about this question. What was John suggesting by that statement? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Ask your neighbor what they think. Any self-respecting Jew, remember, didn't have to go through Samaria. Not now, not ever, if at all possible. Jesus had to go through Samaria. What's going on? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay. What's your neighbor say? What brilliant statement did you hear from your neighbor? Obedience. 
Ah. Good. Okay, okay. What else? Donna. A divine appointment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Way to go, neighbor. <laughs> A little peace and quiet, perhaps. Yeah, there were people there. There were people there, but they were Samaritans. Yeah. Oh, there were people there. Yeah. You know, John, the recorder of this gospel, he knew Jesus. You know, by the time he recorded his gospel, he had been reflecting a lot on the life of Jesus and his experience of following Jesus. You know, would, would Jesus take the longer route to avoid Samaria? No. Krista, he might have taken the longer route to avoid some of the religious hassle and the authorities that were after him. That's a good point. Would he, would he take the shorter route and, and try to avoid the Samaritans? <clears throat> no. Do we ever see Jesus in a hurry anywhere in the Gospels? Really not. Do we ever see him avoiding certain people? Not really. There might have been times in his humanness when he really wanted to avoid certain people. John also knew that Jesus' words and actions were done in obedience, exactly, to his, to his Father's will. Jesus had told his followers that. And so, I think it's reasonable to say that Jesus was on a mission. He had to go through Samaria. He was on a mission, and it became a lesson for his disciples because one day in the future, just before he returned to heaven after his resurrection from the grave, he said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now for Jewish disciples... Witnessing to Samaria would, in many ways, be harder than going to the ends of the earth. And they, I think, would have recalled this day when Jesus said that to them. If you have a chance to read Acts 8, go and read Acts 8 this afternoon. It's, it is just a humorous story of Philip going to Samaria because persecution against the church has broken out. This is, this is early in Acts. Jesus has returned to heaven. The disciples are on their own, filled with the Spirit. Persecution is intense. Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel, and perish the thought, revival breaks out in Samaria. These people become lovers and followers of Jesus. And, and, and John and Peter are sent by the apostles from Jerusalem to see if it really did happen. You know, we've heard news that God's doing something in Samaria. Surely not. So read that in Acts chapter 8. It's, it's a fun story. So first key statement for understanding what is happening in this chapter, I think, is that phrase, he had to go through Samaria. Jesus was on mission. Now let's add the second key statement. In response to, to the woman's question, Jesus said, you know, how, how can you, a Jew, ask me for a Samaritan woman for a drink? How can you, if you knew the gift of God, Jesus said, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what possibility is Jesus 
suggesting to the woman? What, what's, what is he suggesting to her? What's, what's the possibility? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See what your neighbor thinks of that. One minute, we've got to go fast. Start us off. Ah, okay. Telling her that he's the Messiah. And at the end of the story, or at least further on into the half than what we read, he, uh, he says that. That's why you've got to go back and read the rest of the story. We don't have time to do the whole thing here this morning. What else? Other thoughts about this? Yeah, there's something, there's something available to you as well. What else? Any other comments that came up? I think he was, he was appealing to her curiosity. If you knew... If you knew, he's suggesting to her that there is something important that she doesn't know. That God has something for her life that is far greater than ordinary water. And and in that part of the world, water was truly life. It, It was everything. And because of who Jesus is, he could give it. Her. I, I believe he was, he was gently challenging her thinking to move from the practical everyday realities of where she was living and her circumstances to, to think about some spiritual realities, some spiritual possibilities. As, as important as daily living and survival is, Jesus is saying there is more. There is more. Frankly, I think the larger picture here is really important. As she has pointed out, he's a Jew, and she is a Samaritan and a woman. No public conversations between men and women, especially men and women who were not husband and wife. He has stopped at this well and has asked her for a drink. He has broken all of the social norms. She's intrigued. I think there is... Possibly in her mind, the question, what is this man doing here, really? What does he want? And I hope by now, you you think, as I do, that the answer to that is because Jesus had to go through Samaria is an expression of the heart of Jesus. And guess what Samaria was filled with? Samaritans, those people you were talking about. Unfortunately, they're, they're Samaritans. And do you know what those Samaritans were filled with? Sin! Exactly! Exactly! And do you know what sin does? Thank you. Separates us from God. Separates us from the God who loves us And it really messes up our lives. Jesus went to the well that day seeking a lost soul. You know, more than any other application over the years, and and if you've been around the church long enough, you've probably heard it a lot too. The one that I hear that is most often related to this story has to do with sharing our faith. Being intentional. Jesus was intentional seeking out lost people and engaging them in conversations, asking good questions, looking for spirit-led opportunities to create interest in spiritual things, etc. All of that is great stuff. 
And as we would expect, Jesus is the master of that. We see it at work in this text. But all that great stuff is not what grabbed my heart in this text this week. What did, and I hope it grabs yours too, is that what Jesus saw when he came to the well and the woman arrived, he saw, he saw a human being. He saw a person who was deeply broken by sin. He saw someone whose soul was lost because of what sin had done to it. Jesus saw a lonely woman, though I suspect she would not admit to it right up front. She was rejected by the people in her town. There was a reason that she was drawing water at noon in the heat of the day by herself as opposed to morning and evening with another group of women that was their job in those days and it was cooler in the morning and the evening. Why? I think that maybe she just could not bear to be the continued brunt of jokes and verbal abuse by the other women as she had so often been before when drawing water with them. Jesus saw a woman who had been married five times. And possibly because as a woman in that culture, she likely had nowhere else to turn for provision and security. And each time a marriage ended, probably due to a divorce by the husband because women were often viewed as property and had little say in those kinds of decisions, each time that marriage ended her future was hanging in the balance. He saw a woman so disillusioned by the pain and disappointment of broken marriage that she gave up on the idea of ever being happily married and agreed to live with the guy that she was living with. Maybe thinking something like, well, when this relationship ends, as the rest of them have, maybe it won't be so painful because he doesn't own me. If he doesn't own me like property, then he can't treat me like property. Maybe. For sure, Jesus saw a woman whose life was a mess. Because of sin. It was a mess because of her own sin and the sin of others. There is plenty of sin abounding in this world to make mess after mess after mess of every human life. Sin tears things apart. It takes what God has intended for good and it wrecks it. It makes Pain. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus looked at this woman and saw a life that had been wrecked by sin. She was, by the standards of the day, a moral disaster. But he loved her. He had to go through Samaria. He saw a life that was a disaster and he knew that she could be different. 
He saw her through the redemptive work of God. The very thing that he had come to earth to do. He saw the potential for what was lost to be found, for what was broken to be restored to something of great beauty and wholeness. And this story, I think, for me, for all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, begs the question, what do we see in those who do not know Jesus? Do we see lives that are being lived apart from the saving grace of God? Do we see brokenness because their relationship with God is just that, broken? Do we have compassion on people who are apart from God? Or do we have other emotions, anger, impatience, dislike, maybe even disgust? Sharice and I were walking up on the trail behind our house last night. It just, it just struck me this morning. As we we're walking along, we walk pretty much every day together, and, and it's beautiful up there. We just love the views and the peace and the quiet. And as we're going down one of our favorite paths, there's an enormous pile of garbage laying in that path. Someone had the audacity to load a bunch of crap from their house, debris, construction debris, trash, drive down that trail from Kipling, which is the nearest paved road, and dumped it, I would presume, in the night. Well, you can imagine that we thought very highly of the person who did that. (laughs) We had all kinds of solutions for a person like that. You know, if the officials would want to talk to us, we have some recommendations about how to treat that individual. And I will confess to you that in that moment, because someone had dumped their trash on my trail, I forgot that it was a human being loved by God that had done that. Now, I certainly hope that it wasn't a human being who lives in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, because then I'm just going to say they're stupid. But here's my point. I think that sometimes it's easy for us as people to slip into that mode, dealing with people who are different than we are, that think differently, that live lifestyles that are different than us. They, they go places morally that we would never conceive of. And it's so easy to be disgusted because they should know better. No, they don't. Because that's what sin does. Sin messes with our minds and our ability to know the truth. And until the grace of God dawns in our lives, we are no better off than they. Are you with me? Our world is filled with Samaritans. Sin-filled people living sin-wrecked lives, whether they know it or not, because they do not have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. It is not the person 
most often, in my experience, from the radically different culture on the other side of the world that is hardest to love. To see this way, it's the person nearby. It's the person whose language and rituals and and values and ancestry and maybe even personal history might be quite similar to mine. It's the person who dumps trash on my trail. Those are the people that I forget are human beings loved by God in need of his grace and redemption. In this season of Lent, we celebrate God's grace. We celebrate it toward us when we were in sin as people who have been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, we recognize that we have been dealt with oh so graciously. How do we then feel about others and treat others who have yet to experience that life-transforming, soul-restoring grace? Praise team, come on up, and I'm just going to say a couple more things as you come and prepare to lead us in response. Be sure, as I've mentioned earlier, to to go home and read the rest of the story today. The woman went back to her town and said to the townsfolks, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. She didn't go back and say, he is the most acutely theological individual I've ever been around. He, He defended... Everything that he believed, by, by putting it upon Scripture, he, he refuted all of my arguments. None of that. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. I think it's kind of humorous how little she seemed to understand of what Jesus was saying in the dialogue piece that we read together. But what made an impression upon her heart was that a Jewish man who somehow knew everything about her, didn't reject her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't try to take advantage of her. But instead, he treated her like she had value and great worth. She had come face to face with grace incarnate. And it changed her. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that, that everyone has a story. I said to you before that everybody's weird for a reason. But at some point in the life of the child of God, grace breaks in and changes everything. May the Spirit remind us often of that truth in this season of Lent as we reflect upon the amazing grace of God that has broken into our lives and has opened our eyes to the truth and our hearts to respond to the grace that he so graciously pours into us. And may, as we remember that, may we also be reminded and filled with compassion to love for and pray for those who have yet to know his grace. Amen.